Good morning. Let us pray together. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your word, for its riches and the treasures of truth that we have within it. And we pray, Lord, that you would break through our weakness, our sin, and our distractions to speak to our hearts and once again to give glory to the Lord Jesus because we ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen. I want you this morning to turn with me again to Hebrews and we're going to carry on from where we left off in Hebrews chapter 1. And we're going to begin by looking at the fourth verse and what follows in, in the chapter. Now this, in verse 4 here in Hebrews, we are introduced to the topic which dominates the thought of these first two chapters of the book. The Lord Jesus' superior, superiority over the angels. As their name suggests, the angels are God's messengers. And that word which was spoken in the Old Testament was a word that was mediated to Moses and the prophets in its many and various ways by angels. That is, that it was a word that carried God's authority we are left in no doubt from chapter 2 where it says that it was a word spoken through angels and it proved to be unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense. So it was a word to be listened to even though it was mediated by angels. It was a message directly from God and carried his unchanging and certain authority a word that had to be listened to. But our writer here is at pains to demonstrate to us that though the angels mediated a true and authoritative word, there was a word that was superior, a word that was given to us by his son, a direct word. It was a word from the one who, as verse 2 and 3 says, made the world, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. He is the incarnate son who was made for a little while lower than the angels, who when he had made purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I was once invited to an investiture in government house for men and women who had been given titles by the Queen. With those titles went status in the community. 
No longer were they George or Harriet or whatever, but they left that place as Sir George and Dame Harriet and what have you. Now having become as much better than angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And this is what the writer to the Hebrews wants us to understand. That this name which the Lord Jesus has is far above that which the angels have. He has a higher status. A name promised in Isaiah 53.10. When Isaiah says if he would render himself as a guilt offering... He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. By meeting these conditions, our Lord Jesus inherited a name superior to that of angels. But that was not all. For the creation was subjected to futility. It wasn't just um, people. Who, who fell under the curse of sin. The whole of creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also might be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Since this futility and slavery to corruption is part of God's righteous judgment on sin, the Messiah, as the last Adam, had to submit himself to the demands of that justice which had placed the curse on creation for the purpose of redeeming, of redeeming a sin-cursed universe and the people within it. All things had been given into his hands, and the outcome of the future or the future of all things depended upon the obedience of the man, Christ Jesus. Our Lord Jesus' response is found in Psalm 40, verse 8. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. It's not only that he has fulfilled God's conditions for redemption as a real man, as the last Adam. Can the Son inherit all things? And with him, that name which is above all. For it is fitting for him for whom all things are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation, through sufferings. He had to become a man and to be subject to the curse that had been placed, that Adam brought upon creation. For a little while he may have been made a little lower than the angels to suffer the effects of Adam's fall. But when having fulfilled the conditions required for redemption, he was deservedly crowned with glory and honor. The author is at pains to demonstrate just how superior this glory and this honor is. 
bestowed upon the crucified and resurrected Son of God. First, he wants them to consider the question derived from Psalm 2. To which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This psalm is unquestionably what we would call a messianic psalm. That is, it is a psalm that speaks of the coming Messiah and therefore of the Lord Jesus Christ in his role as the promised Saviour King. The original promise is found in God's words to the serpent when he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And to fulfill this promise, the Lord Jesus had to come, become a man. He had to be born of a woman and to take on human flesh like our sinful flesh. The quotation from Psalm 2 at least suggests to us an eternal truth. The Father says, You are my Son. You ever have been my son, co-eternal with me, sharing my nature. You always will be my son. Today, I have begotten you, begotten you as the last Adam. In Galatians 4.4 we read, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. In God's set day, he, begot, he was begotten, brought forth as a real man, without losing his eternal nature as the second person of the Trinity, he added to himself in an act of stupendous humility, human nature. He became, as Charles Wesley put it, our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. And when we stop to think about it, the infinite God becoming a man is something that is beyond our comprehension. It's absolute mystery. That Christ was the promised seed, there is no doubt. God openly called the Lord Jesus his son. He was called his son at his baptism. When God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But it wasn't just once, it was again on the Mount of Transfiguration when he said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. The first quotation is given to the author's readers in the form of a question. To which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? And the answer, of course, is to none of them. 
And then he gives a second quotation from Psalm, uh, 2 Samuel rather, chapter 7 and verse 12 and 17 when he says to uh, David, the prophet Nathan says to David, when David wanted to build a, a permanent place for the Ark of the Covenant, when he wanted to build the temple, this is what Nathan said to him. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul when I removed it from him. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Now it is obvious to any serious reader of the Bible that these words were never fulfilled by Solomon. The promise to David was, in essence, messianic. The kingdom that is to last forever is to be a messianic accomplishment. Solomon did indeed build a temple. But it came apart in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, he began to build the house of the Lord. And in the eleventh year, the house was finished throughout all its parts and according to all its plans. It was a place that was blessed by God. But there is far more here in Nathan's prophecy than could be exhausted by Solomon's building of the temple, no matter how beautiful it was. Eventually, it was a temple that was destroyed. But in 2 Samuel 7, 15, it says... When he, he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. This obviously goes further than Solomon and his kingdom. Who, like David, is dead and buried and no longer on any throne. It refers to a far greater than David or his son Solomon. It refers to his greater son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and the strokes he endured as the substitutionary suffering for sin. We can compare what is being said here with what is said elsewhere, for instance, in Isaiah 53. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And by his, uh, and the chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. 
Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Or as we read in Corinthians where Paul says he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then in Romans where Paul speaks of the gospel concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. This special relationship is made evident in the Lord Jesus Christ's attitude to his Father. When Jesus said to them, to the disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. As he goes to the cross, his attitude never changes, and he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. No angel ever rose to such a bond of intimacy as we see here. Clearly the Lord Jesus occupies a place far above the angels and his testimony likewise must be seen to be far superior to that of angels. He surpasses them just as reality surpasses description. The writer goes on to his third quotation, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. This quotation is from Psalm 97. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. I'm reminded of that as I ride around the roads today and I see all the totem poles and things that are being erased around the roads that we drive on. All of them, idols without, with eyes that cannot see, arms but cannot do anything, legs but cannot walk. They are blind, speechless, helpless, and yet people worship them. And God calls us here to worship Christ, a real man who became a real saviour. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, which the writer uses here with regard to Psalm 97.7, Worship him, all you gods. The Greek translation actually reads, let all the angels worship him. There are those who prefer the reading we have here in the New American Standard and refer to it, to refer it to the Lord's second coming. <coughs> Excuse me. But such a reading doesn't suit the present context. The author obviously means us to understand it 
as referring to the superiority of the Lord Jesus rather than a, a, a superior, superiority that exists now rather than a superiority that is to come. The point is that the worship of angels is something that belongs to God alone. For instance, in Isaiah, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him. One called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now the worship spoken of in Psalm 97 is the same. It is worship that belongs to God alone. So Jeffrey Wilson says in his commentary, Hence the worship which the angels were commanded to pay to Jehovah under the old economy is now conferred upon Christ. Now, in terms of the argument that the writer to the Hebrews is using, the inferior always worships the superior. And the angels commanded to worship the Son are doing so again to establish his superiority as the incarnate Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, over angels. They must bow down and worship him. And then, of angels, he said, in Hebrews 1.7, makes his angels winds and ministers a flame of fire. This is a question from Psalm 107. The emphasis here is on the fact that he makes his angels winds and flames of fire. He makes them winds and flames of fire. They are superior beings, but they are created beings. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness above your companions. That is above all other created beings. This again is a question from the Psalms. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows, above all creation and all created beings. The incarnate Son here is recognized as being placed on the throne of an everlasting kingdom. If receiving worship from angels that belong to God alone is not enough to convince us of the superiority of the Son, then here the author gives us a clear statement of the Son's personal deity. And the sixth quotation comes from Psalm 102. Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure 
and all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. This is clearly a reference to the Lord Jesus' role in creation, and is paralleled in, John, in the thought of John 1.3, where John says, All things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. When the author speaks of foundations, he is not proposing that the earth is static like a building, but is referring to the principles of its existence. All creation, both in heavens and on earth, is founded upon the Son's powerful, creative, and sustaining word, and therefore totally dependent upon him. It was Luther who said, one of the amazing things to consider is that the babe in Bethlehem, in the manger, was at the same time, while dependent upon his mother for everything, upholding the universe by the power of his being. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. As creator, he is superior to creation and consequently superior to the angels whom he created. Though creation may become old and be changed, and he change it with the ease of throwing off your jacket at the end of the day, yet he himself will never change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of all. And this leads us to the author's fifth point, where he quotes from Psalm 102, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now here the author asks a question, as he did in verse 5. But to which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And as in verse 5, the answer is self-evident to none of them. And so Thomas Hewitt wrote, It is the Father who gives the invitation to the Son to sit on my right hand. Such an invitation was never extended to angels. For such an honour and dignity was never theirs, either by right or by gift. It belongs to the Son alone who possessed it by right in his pre-existent state and now takes it by invitation. The incarnate Son, having ascended to the throne by in the invitation of the Father, because he had fulfilled all the conditions that the Father had placed upon him to redeem creation, now receives the promise that his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. 
It is as natural for us as it is for the original disciples when faced with these truths to ask the question, when? When will it be? Well, I, I believe that we have more excuse to look up now than every, any generation before us. And uh, we could say, when? Not long now. Um, We need to remember the principle of Deuteronomy. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of his law, knowing that what he says is true and won't change. The end of the chapter reminds us of the angels God given service. They are, not, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who inherit salvation? The Son sits upon the throne in the place of absolute authority. But the angels, by contrast, even the greatest of them, are ever before the throne as serving spirits. Not only that, but they also serve, uh, sent to render service to those who inherit salvation. There are so many examples of this in scripture that it would be, uh, I would not have time to, to tell you all, all of them, but I leave with ju just a few that, that, to indicate what this verse means. There was the salvation of Israel from Egypt in all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. And he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. It was God's angels who watched over and guided Israel through the Exodus. Who brought about the plagues and parted the sea. Provided the servants who did exactly as God desired. For his people. It was angels who cared for his people as when Elijah was suffering weariness and depression. In 1 Kings 19, he lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise and eat. It happened that night that the angel of the Lord. Um, sorry, it happened to Jerusalem and the people who were besieged in Jerusalem. And it happened that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians when men rose early in the morning. Behold, all of them were dead. That is, the men of Jerusalem rose early in the morning, looked out, and behold, they were all dead. In the furnace, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, as he looked at the service, sermon, uh, as he looked at the furnace that he set up, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him. Then to Daniel, and Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me. 
Are they not all ministering spirits, the angels, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? What a comfort there is here for the believer. But that, that is not the point here. The point is that the angels are servants and servants at best, but the Son is sovereign on the throne. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the writer to the Hebrews says to us, for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And he has in mind, of course, the words of the Lord Jesus. We are not to take lightly those things that we have heard about the Lord Jesus, nor are we to treat them with familiarity as if it did not matter, nor are we to treat him with familiarity even though he be our friend, he is our Lord. We are dealing with the Lord of glory, the sovereign of the universe, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who when he had made purification for, of sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And so the author of the Hebrews can say that he is having become as much better than the angels, has inherited a more excellent name than they. And today God says to us, as he says to them, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we cannot comprehend the blessings that we have in the Lord Jesus. We cannot comprehend the cost that he met when he gave himself as a sacrifice for sins. And Lord, we cannot comprehend the glory which he now experiences at the right, your right hand. But we pray that you would open our eyes to see as much as we can comprehend that we may worship him, that we may listen to what he has told us in his word, and that we may rely upon it because he has told us if it were not so, he would have told us. Oh, Father, give us such faith and such dependence, we pray, because we ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.